Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a lit fest treat. This year is no different. Listen in on the final installation of the lit fest participants reading. A spectrum of work showcases the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community of writers. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the um, ultimate LitFest participant reading. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be ultimate in many ways. It's, it is the, the third of three readings, um, and we've had uh, two pretty stellar examples of the form uh, over the past week or so, um, last Sunday and last Saturday, the two very strong showings from participants. So uh, those reading tonight have a lot to live up to. And um, don't worry, it's no pressure, it's not a competition, but but it is, it's a competition. <laughs> We're all here to to outread and outright the everyone else. Um, we have a full slate. We have um, some poets, some memoirists, some fiction writers. Um, so uh, uh, the the whole sampling. And I, I'd like to just start off with a um, love poem, short love poem. Um, this is called Stardust. Um, in, inside every favor... There hides a small curse. The sexiest smile eventually turns stiff. True love is bad. Obligation is worse. Inside every favor, there hides a small curse. So for now, let's make out in the back of your hearse. (laughs) We'll let the time and our lives and the continents drift. Inside every favor there hides a small curse. The sexiest smile eventually turns stiff. Thanks. Okay, so um, our first reader tonight... I'm sorry, I, I should introduce myself. Um, I'm J. Diego Fry. I'll be the um, introducer tonight. Um, our first reader uh, is um, a novelist? No. A novelist and a short story writer, short story, uh, short fiction writer, um, Jerry Wilson. Uh, Jerry Wilson would love to be the next literary phenomenon to come out of Mississippi. Parentheses move over, Catherine Stockett. Jerry has had several published short stories and a couple of completed novels, and she's working on her third novel and a story collection. And hopefully, we're going to hear some of that. Please give a warm welcome to Jerry Wilson. I didn't know, I'm surprised, I didn't know I was going first. So, um, um, I'm going to read you just the first couple of pages from a short story that seems to want to become a novel, so, so we'll see. And it's purely coincidental that this scene is set um, and a um, ski slope in Colorado. I didn't, didn't plan it for this conference. Poised at the, at the top of the ski slope, Robin looked down at the expanse of snow. This trail was a blue, 
for beginners, her husband Howard had assured her, but it looked steep. Howard waited a few yards below. He shouted something she didn't hear. What? she yelled. Angle across the slope, not down it. Robin knew that. The private instructor had told her. Taking a deep breath, she pushed off with the poles. Howard skied alongside her. Okay, now make a V with the skis. She locked her knees, nudged the ski tips together, and made the wedge. That's good. You're making a right turn, so lighten up on the right ski and shift your weight to the left. She tried to do what Howard said, but her skis drifted apart. Weight on the left ski, Robin. The left. I know that. Instead of making the turn, she picked up speed. Her skis... her skis slipping farther and farther apart until she fell and skidded sideways down the slope and landed in a snowbank near the trees. She sat up and took off her goggles. Her knit hat had come off somewhere. She looked back up the slope and didn't see it. She shook snow out of her hair. Howard skied to where she sat. You okay? He tilted her face up. For God's sake, don't cry. I'm not. My nose is running. One ski had come off, and now Robin released the other, jabbed her poles into the snow and tried to stand, and when Howard grabbed her arm, she jerked away. This part I can do, she said. She struggled to her feet. I'm going in now. Don't quit. You'll catch on. I don't think so. She wiped her eyes on her sleeve. I suppose she's a great snow skier. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course you do. The girl. Her. Don't start. I'm here, aren't I? Yeah, you're here, she said. But he might as well have been a thousand miles away. Howard took off his gloves and goggles and tucked them under his arm. He didn't look at her. If she could see his eyes, she'd know whether he was lying. Why don't you go ski with Carl, she said. Are you sure? Yeah. Their 11-year-old son was a natural. Carl had been making parallel turns since his first day in ski school. That morning, he was skiing with the Brewers, their friends from home, while Howard tried to teach Robin what a private instructor hadn't been able to do in three expensive lessons. Howard put the goggles and gloves back on. Can you make it down okay? She nodded. He skied away, making clean, sharp turns down the slope and a sweeping stop at the bottom. He headed for the lift and didn't look back. Thanks. Thank you, Jerry. That you are a voice out of Mississippi. That, that was that was excellent. Um, our next reader is uh, Petra Perkins. Petra excels at writing erotic poetry. And the fiction editor of The New Yorker once sent her a five-line handwritten rejection, which is framed on her wall. Um, I think she's not reading poetry tonight. I think she's reading uh, nonfiction? A story, okay. Please welcome Petra Perkins. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here reading. Can you hear me? Okay, I didn't memorize it. Um, 
how many of you have been on a sailboat? About half of you? Okay, the other half, I'd like to tell you what a mast is. That's that steel thing that that goes straight up and holds the mainsail on a little sailboat. Because this is all about the mast. This is called One Day Before the Mast. Sailing, before I tried it, seemed an idyllic way to escape the zeros and ones of my computer job. I was drowning in details, project plans, software glitches, and schedule pitches. Running away was too much trouble, so I decided on temporary escapes. When I imagined sailing, I daydreamed. Finding my perfect pace, setting cruise control, lying on deck, slathered in SP-8 dark coconut oil. I envisioned sliding through three rum Mai Tais on my way to palm tree oases. The rest was somewhat hazy. I failed to consider the requirements of actually launching a boat. See, I just wanted to be there, not get there. The chatty herons at Chatfield Dam must still be gossiping about the day they shared their ocean with a rare laughing hyena. It was a brisk day in the high desert Denver, just on the brink of sailing weather. I'd purchased a small sloop and was surprised it came loaded with equipment, a motor, motor mount, a chest full of winches, halyards, old sails, which are called canvas in nautical talk, Ropes, which are for some reason are actually called sheets, more little doodads, and a trailer full of its own esoteric paraphernalia. I didn't figure it out until after two coors what the bucket was for. <laughs> Setting up the mast is a non-trivial precursor to sailing. Before buying the boat, I should have read Two Years Before the Mast by Charles Dana, an iconic maritime writer. Before the mast means the quarters where common sailors lived. It must have been bloody awful for those pitiful mates. Endless rolling of waves, swabbing of decks, nauseous cooking on gimbaled stoves, climbing the masochistic mass in perilous straits to repair little doodad shit up high. There's no way I would have agreed to spend two years before the mass, much less the seven years I actually ended up spending. Yes, seven years, the time it took your, takes your body to completely regenerate its brain cells. I'd simply wanted to sail on convenient weekends, relax topside in warm sunshine, inhale pungent f- fishy aromas, hear heron wings flapping, feel soft, rhythmic waves slapping the hull. In other words, escape work. Funny how when you try to escape something, you end up having to confront it full bore. Like if you were a doctor and you went on a vacation and everybody but you got sick. Well, here I was planning my getaway across a one-fucking-mile lake, and I had to first pass marine mechanics and electronics 101. Step one, step the mast. That's where Larry, my boyfriend, came in. Larry loves mechanical challenges even more than he loves women, which is to say a lot. (laughs) Whereas I was confused and unhappy that the mast didn't pop up at the mere press of a button, he was ecstatic. It was like Christmas for him, and he had just gotten an erector set. 
if I got an erector set for Christmas, I would have bawled my eyes out, and I wanted to demand Barbie's evening cruise attire set. He's zooming to and fro around the boat like the Energizer Bunny on steroids, ordering me, admonishing me, shouting at me to hold this, move that, push up, pull down, be careful. He's putting pieces together, testing wires, nuts, and bolts, learning the ropes. I think I determine what go piss up a rope really means. I'm just standing there, mute, in shock, wishing I had my $2,800 back. I couldn't imagine paying to do this every weekend, but apparently that's what I had signed up to do. What had I gotten myself into? I quickly figured I'd now have to to rent a slip at the marina so I could park it, leaving the mast up permanently, and for that I would need a custom boat cover. It was only my first day as a boatie, and already I had figured out what most people take at least a year to discover, and that's owning a boat is the same as throwing thousands of greenbacks into green water. Am I not a quick study? Larry had obviously taken command of the ship. After we'd spent a contentious morning toward finally erecting the masthead, he directed, get in the boat, or get in the truck, back this rig into the lake, watch me in the mirrors. I obeyed two out of three. (laughs) I was weary of being the service robot and ready to take charge launching my fantasy. I jumped in the driver's seat, lickety-split, and reversed my 18-foot sailboat in with the 25-foot swaying mass into Chatfield Reservoir without a sideward glance to Larry's hand-waving signals. My gaze was, was locked into rear view at my tiny yacht floating in a landlocked ocean on its maiden voyage, a truly magnificent sight and my symbol of imminent freedom from responsibility. Immediately, I flooded and floated Larry's truck. (laughs) After hours of shouting, sweating, breastfeeding, recriminating, I was drowning in details again, and already behind schedule again on my palm tree oasis escape plan. Partially out of hysteria, I began cackling wildly, flapping arms and head through the open window like some goofy bird from a foreign seaside jungle. I couldn't stop. I fell screeching into ice-cold water. I did not know how to swim. (laughs) Jenny's too pretty not to illuminate. (laughs) It's all about the mast. Thank you, Petra. Um, our next reader, um, I'm in mad respect of uh, this man's output. Um, our next reader, John Neal. John Neal has written eight novels and several screenplays and is currently working on his autobiography. Um, please give a warm welcome to Mr. John Neal. Judgment Night. Dan punched the pillow, trying to make a dent for his ear, 
His upper shoulder was chilly, but his pits were sweltering. His right knee ached, and damn it, the pillow was so hard his ear felt like the cartilage was crushed. Dan raised up on his elbow to pound the rock with his other fist. How uncomfortable. Worst of all, he couldn't get the image of Meredith out of his mind. There she was, standing by the road, mascara smudged, nose a snotty red blob. Her eyes were bleary, and even her freckles seemed blurry. He could see she'd been crying. Why? Obviously because her life sucked. Dan didn't need to know the details, the actual triggers. Besides, he wanted to leave Meredith her privacy, her dignity, so he didn't pry. She looked disheveled and miserable, like a slovenly prostitute at the end of an alcoholic binge. Her hair was uncombed. Her clothes looked like the yard sale had fallen on her. She looked lost, like she couldn't find the Meredith inside herself that used to be the Meredith he knew. Dan hadn't seen her in several months, not since he'd moved out of her trailer and left the country. Now he'd returned, not to get back together with her, but to touch base with some people they both knew, people they'd been part of a group with, people to whom she was now persona non grata. Naturally, Dan's loyalties were with the group, not Meredith, even though she looked like she really needed a friend right then. Hi, he said inadequately. Should he hug her? What would she make of it? Would she cling to him desperately, glomming onto him like some sort of big freckled leech? He wasn't going to ask how she was. It was obvious she was a mess. Um... I never said thank you, but I really appreciated that you let me stay in your trailer. Actually, it had been one of the other people in the group who had pointed out months ago that Dan hadn't thanked Meredith for letting him live with her rent-free for months, and saying thank you had been on his to-do list ever since. Mission accomplished. Meredith blinked, maybe in surprise or maybe because she thought he was a total dork for saying that so long after the fact. In retrospect, lying in a sweaty bed on this sleepless night, Dan couldn't decide which. He also couldn't remember exactly what she'd said. Sure, or you're welcome, or something. The words didn't matter because they both knew it was just a way to avoid stating the obvious, that she'd been weeping. So, he said to make conversation, what are you doing out here? The two-lane road was up the slope from the trailer park. There was nothing else around, just weeds and the gravel strip along the edge of the tarmac. Waiting for a guy to pick me up. That sounded weird, so she added, so he doesn't have to drive down there. She shrugged toward the trailer park. Dan nodded. He pictured some crude asshole in a beat-up car, too uncouth to pick up his date at her door. Then he'd no doubt take her to a bar and get her drunk and fuck her and abuse her and her self-esteem was so low she'd let him, and then she'd hate herself even more, and the cycle of self-destruction would keep spiraling down, down, down until Meredith ended up dead, or so he imagined. Dan felt an inner pull to rescue her, to tell her she didn't have to do this, that she was a wonderful, generous person, beautiful in her own freckly way, and that she didn't deserve some jerk who'd treat her like shit. Like he had, sort of. Not that Dan had hurt her, physically at least, 
but he did have sex with her twice and frankly it was him manipulating her into it not real love or romance she never invited him into her bed in front of the trailer the two times they did it were in the living room once on the floor and once where he slept on a storage cabinet nevertheless they'd spent many hours together sharing food and wine and smoke and talk He'd grown fond of her foreign accent and funny ways. But he was on his way to see people who had had a falling out with Meredith. He couldn't exactly invite her to come with him to get her off that ugly roadside. The ironic thing was, when he told the group he'd seen Meredith, they asked why he didn't bring her with him. Talk about misplaced loyalty. Instead, he had said to her, So, um, see you although it was the last time he ever did see Meredith. Dan turned and walked across the road. He glanced back, seeing her standing there in her messed-up hair and rumpled sweater, shoulders bowed, head lowered, waiting for her life to just get more miserable. Dan felt so guilty. Why hadn't he reached out to her, someone he supposedly loved? Why had he left her standing in those weeds and in her tears, waiting for some guy who would just use her and throw her away like the piece of trash he obviously believed she was? He could have opened his heart, opened his arms and drawn her into a hug. He could have taken her hand and led her to a group of people who knew her and, despite spats, cared about her. He could have changed her life, made it better. Instead, he let her slip deeper into a hell of drinks and drugs and cruelty. Or was there a cosmic reason he abandoned her? Had his higher self prompted him to walk away? Was letting Meredith fight her own battles better for her soul's growth? If he'd actually rescued her, would she have been cheated out of some valuable life lesson? Or was all that just a bunch of bull to justify his cold, withholding behavior? Dan punched the pillow again, wishing it were his face, sinking deeper into his own hell. Thank you, John. That was great. Whoa. Now we're tippy. Was this up on the stand before? It's up here? What? It's great. Okay, that's a little better. All right. Um, thank you, John. That was very evocative. I could, I could, I was there. I could picture that. Um, our next reader is, a, is an interesting cat. I just met her tonight. Um, memoirist Vicki Gundrum uh, she has a brief bio that she sent me Vicki Gundrum has edited Noam Chomsky and lived downstairs from a crystal meth lab <laughs> but not at the same time <laughs> please welcome Vicki Gundrum had to redeem myself somehow. This is my comeback. Um, this is from the memoir of a super enabler. Your mother, she was a doll. Kukla, my mother's cousin, told me 
I guess that was before mom was a mother. These days I do her bidding. I fetch a clean diaper for my little sister when mom says diaper. I bring glasses of soda and make and serve sandwiches. The diapers, soda, food goes on all day. My mother talks on the phone to her friends. She has wonderful friends and they can't do enough for her. When a narcissist loves you, it makes you feel special. She's like a hurricane with no eye, fascinating from a distance, inescapable in the path, nothing calm about it. My mother hates my father and they are both yellers. She starts the fights with insults. When my dad is angry, he calls her woman. The worst place to be in a fight is the front center seat of the car with my dad at the wheel and my mom to my right. My father is a terrible driver and responsible for two of my four phobias. Even though I know my mom is the mean one, I love her the most. She gets me worked up when telling me she hates my dad, how he came from that Nazi ghetto, West Bend, Wisconsin. (laughs) And I say, I hate him too. The first time I said it, I meant it. The second time was just to console her. (laughs) I didn't say it after that, but challenged her bullshit and suggested we name our oven Auschwitz. (laughs) She asked me why I hated her sometimes, and I stared back. That stare back took years. The years before, I am sad with the yelling and my mom being mean to my dad during the joy rides, and I decide to stop talking. No one listens to me anyway, so why put out the peacemaking efforts and other good things I am doing? I try elective mutism at age eight and nobody notices. (laughs) I go back to talking, but it's the talking of the please pass the salt variety. Joni no longer wears diapers, and my new tasks are bringing soda and gin, bridge mix nuts, and paper and pen so mom can write her children fake sick notices to excuse us from school. The woman hates to be alone. My sisters are spared work around the house and personal mother services. I have a sense of taking one for the team. My mother is lazy. She once made me shave her legs for her. Come on, honey, do it for mommy. But I don't know how, I pleaded. It's easy, she said, as she hoisted a bare leg up one side of the tub while lighting a cigarette with her free hands. I dampened the straight edge and ran it over a bar of soap, as instructed. I held the blade part horizontal to her shin and pressed down as I guided it up. She screamed and bled. I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry I cut you. I attend the University of Wisconsin-Madison, My favorite class is Psychology 101, in which I learn about Harry Harlow's wire and cloth monkey experiments conducted in the 1960s at the university's primate lab. (laughs) Infant monkeys were separated from their mothers soon after birth and raised instead with surrogate mothers made of heavy wire or of wood covered with soft soft hairy cloth. In one experiment, both types of surrogates were in the room but only the wire monkey mother had a nipple for nursing. Even so, the infant spent a greater amount of time clinging to the cloth surrogate for comfort. Whether cloth or wire, mothers are mothers. And when the surrogates were removed from the room, the young monkeys grew anxious and would often freeze up, crouch, rock, scream, and cry. In later life, the experimental monkeys took to clutching themselves and rocking back and forth, 
They were overly aggressive except when it came to sex, which they avoided or fumbled. My mother loved her children, but she could only be the baby in the mother-baby pair. My mother was successful. She got what she wanted, but was not admirable. She loved her children, but her children had to love a baby back. That's the nicest way to put it. When I have a headache and yell and am angry, I remember my mother as a wire monkey. I had the wire monkey mother. Wow. That Nazi ghetto, West Bend, Wisconsin. Wow. Thank you, Vicki. Um, up next, uh, another first-time reader, um, Tiffany Kassab. Kassab? Tiffany Kassab, uh, who uh, just graduated from Regis University with an MA in creative writing, emphasis in nonfiction. Uh, mostly, she mostly works w- uh, with essays and flash nonfiction, and I, th- I think she's reading us a flash nonfiction piece tonight. It's titled "Smashed Flowers." Please welcome Tiffany Kassab. Okay, it's still a work in progress. I'm only saying that to make me feel better. Okay. Dead daisies decorate my apartment. Shriveled up smaller than a dime, I collect them in the palm of my hand. One lie smashed between my ottoman seams and ginger cookie crumbs. My daughter was eating cookies while watching Sesame Street. The daisies bundled in the field outside, sprouting through the morning fog, stretching to get sun on their faces. They dapple white splotches on the concrete line, easy pickings for my daughter. Mommy, a flower, please, she says on walks in. I set her down so we can pick out the right one. I point at one that has lost a few petals and looks windblown. She points at one with perfect petal alignment, a beautiful circle like a white dress twirling out in the soft breeze of summer. The stem moves straight down in sturdy measure. The other has a snap stem. It would fall over on its own before day's end. Let's grab this one, I plead, pointing at the damaged flower. This one, mommy, she says, ripping the thick stem from the earth with such rigor she loses balance. The petals stick to her fingers, pulling from the yellow center. She pinches the stem, then holds it up to me, smiling with her gap teeth. It's beautiful, baby, I say, straining a smile. What was strong a moment ago is now another spoiled, precious thing. How easily we possessed it. The rest of the walk-in, I hold my daughter's hand a little bit tighter. amazing what you can get into 247 words <laughs> good job um, thank you Tiffany um, we have one more uh, reader before the break and we'll take a little five minute break after that uh, just everybody can get um, something more to drink um, lighthouse uh, friend and firebrand and uh, um, uh, often volunteer uh, Marie Kaufman uh, uh, lives up north and uh, practices one of the great professions, teaching high school students English. Um, she has been working on a historical novel uh, for a couple years now, I think, and uh, it must be getting close to... <laughs> At any rate, 
She's going to be, I believe, reading to us from that tonight. Yes, please, warm welcome from Miss Marie Kaufman. Hi. <clears throat> this is from my novel in progress, A Thin Veil. It was 7 o'clock when Trisha entered Hank's building. She was so very late. She ran up the stairs. The laughter of children and the shouts of their mothers seeped through shabbily hung door frames. The smell of saffron and molasses lingered heavy in the rafters above her. The fingers of her right hand brushed against the frayed material of her dress's pocket. The yellow petal of a crocheted flower hung limply against her hip. She had almost forgotten. The commotion on the bus and the letter had distracted her. She ran a hand through her hair, straightened the dress, tucked the unraveling threads of yarn into what was left of the pocket. She could do nothing about the snag in her hose. It ran from knee to ankle where it disappeared beneath the sole of her shoe. She was as composed as she could be. On the landing of the building's 11th floor, Trisha found a short, thick-limbed teenage boy pacing the hallway. His dark skin shone with the sweat of his effort. She called out to him. Charlie. The boy turned to her. What the fuck, girl, Charlie said. Hank is flippin', you're an hour late. Charlie's eyes passed over her. She saw that he saw her disheveled state. What the fuck happened to you? Nothing, it's nothing, Trisha said. She smoothed her dress again. I got caught up in something at work. Something that tore you up, Charlie asked. No, I was rushing to get here. Caught my dress on something and fell. She flapped her hands around her in frustration. You know how clumsy I am. I just didn't have time to go home and change. Is that so, he said, skeptical, but his concern faded quickly. Well, Hank is over the top in there. He keeps saying that you ain't coming, that you couldn't get things done, just like he said you couldn't. He and Mama went head-to-head -head just a bit ago. That's why I came out here. Nothing nastier than Mama's wrath. Mama's here? Of course Mama's here, Charlie said. We're all waiting on the report. Listen, girl, there ain't no time for visiting. You've got to get your ass in there. Did you get things set up or what? Motherfucker bound to kill us both if you didn't. Yes, of course I did, she said. Everything is as we plan, but I also got letters from Willie. A messenger came this morning, someone who was over there with him. Yeah, that Mike guy, right, Charlie said. He's in there now. Damn, he smells like shit, don't he? Left his mind in Nam and brought home the stink. He's been up Hank's ass since he got here. I want a chance to talk to Mama about Willie's letter. Ain't going to happen anytime soon, Charlie said. Come on, Trisha, you've got work to do. He turned and walked down the narrow hall to the last door on the left. Don't you even care, Charlie? We haven't heard from Willie in months. Before he could reply, a man threw the apartment door open and grabbed the lapels of Charlie's black leather jacket. What the fuck, Chuck? He screamed in Charlie's face. I told you that bitch ain't coming. Let him alone, Hank, Trisha said. I'm right here. He did not turn to look at her. He made an exaggerated opening of his hands to release Charlie. He smiled widely at Charlie and turned his back on them. Oh, well, ain't it about damn time. Thank you, Marie. That was great. I just had a, uh, I was just um, chided by an, uh, a writing associate of mine uh, because uh, she said, since I'm up in front of an audience, I should mention that I have a book. Yes. yes. And that it's for sale back there. So, but, what is the name of the but, book? <laughs> all, all of you know the name of the book because I'm sure more than half of you have T-shirts with it on it, with the name of it on it. The book is called Umbrellas or Else. 
Um, and it is for sale back there, and it's just out with a brand new flashy cover that I'm very fond of. <laughs> next year, next year the poetry apocalypse uh, comes out. Um, no, that's not the name of it. But um, one more quick love poem, or not? No. Okay. No. Okay. Dirtier. Um, this is called "Come On." Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem. It starts good, but it it just peters out after that. Um, come on, um, take a chance on love tonight. Invite this poem into your bed. It's small and cute, and it won't bite. Take a chance on love tonight. Pull back the covers, turn on the light, and embrace what some damn poet said. Take a chance on love tonight and invite this poem into your bed. It's called Come On. Coming up next, we have um, somebody who um, I was deeply impressed with the first time I saw her read at a writer's draft two years ago, maybe. Um, Anna Stoll um, Anna was an ER nurse in Iraq um, at Abu Ghraib during the surge of 2006 and you know we're all deeply happy that she's back <laughs> and here with us um, and I don't have a genre for you are you a memoirist a fiction memoirist memoirist okay so warm welcome please for Anna Stoll Hello, Denver. <laughs> 2006, Camp Cropper internment facility, Iraq. A medical crew can be dangerous at war. We're smart. We get bored easily. We're 50% female. With that mix, it makes for a grand New Year's Eve party. Lipstick emerges for the first time in months as did sparkly eyeshadow and deliberately clean uniforms, and damn, we smelled good. <laughs> Together, we nurses decorated the conference room with streamers and a large mirrored disco ball. How we got that in war, I have no idea. There were men from another company, interrogators, the lawyers of JAG, and military police. We drink cocktails from our canteens, and we laugh and some even dance. Ill feelings that once drifted through our workplace for the last eight months dissipated that evening. Anger, anger and aggression sulked into the cold, damp night, if only for a moment, a moment we had smiling. Of course, as war has it, someone smells smoke. Pop smoke. Not the ashy, pleasant smoke you remember from your favorite Girl Scout summer camp, where you practice kissing boys on the back of your hand with your tongue and all. No, not that. This is an acidic burning smoke. Someone pops smoke, as in smoke grenade, as in many smoke grenades. I'm thinking, shit, are you serious? The seasoned staff exchanges a look of disappointment, and like that, you know, the party is over. Moments later, maybe seconds, the alarms are blaring. I can't recall the tone as each exhausting event 
has its own riots. I think they're like high pitch, low pitch, detainee escape, two shorts and a long, mortar and RPG attacks, wee wah, wee wah. However, CS tear gas needed no alarm because it is its own alarm. That well, nobody forgets a TS tear gas deployment. Our eyes watering, melting the once treasured mascara, we instantly grab our weapons, pull out our dusty masks, and vacate the party building. No need to search for any further chemical weapons of mass destruction. We were using them there. Scattering like kids caught setting ants on fire, we followed the learned protocol, and we each ran to our pre-assigned location. I'm thinking, shit, this is so real, and I'm really tired of real. That night... I'm sorry... That New Year's Eve night, thousands of Sunni detainees rioted in the news of Saddam's hanging a few days earlier, and it had spread like a virus through our prisons. The MPs had to put the riot down by all means necessary, hence the deployment of TS, uh, C, ah, CS tear gas and other unmentionable acts. It was the continuous unmentionable acts day in, day out, month after month, that will haunt me for years, I'm sure. I was already tired of caring for the tortured and the beaten. By morning, we were exhausted, caring for the unavoidable injuries from that different type of combat. It's a secret combat, as there's nothing noble about a prison riot. No awards are given, no hands are shaken. The evenings bloodied and split broken noses, they never make it into your ER. You need to lose an eye for that. Which, unfortunately, for more than a dozen inmates in the months between November and December visited the care, one eye short, my care, one eye short. I spent hours cleaning supposedly non-lethal 303 rounds out of men who are now destined for blindness. Our hospital was on a skeleton crew that, in, that night in efforts to let as many celebrate New Year's Eve as possible. Being short-staffed, many of us were called in to work the riot. Half-drunk, mascara-smeared, raccoon eyes, and all. We showed up. However, New Year's, Day was, New Year's Day was eerily quiet. Morgue at night quiet. Sniper quiet. I was finally able to sleep without drugs quiet. And after a long, deep nap to recoup from the fouled New Year's Eve party, there was a knock at my door. Lazily, I answered, since I was alone in my 10 by 12 room. My roomie was working days for a change and I had the place to myself. I opened the door to the normally jovial and naive girls. My roommate and I unfortunately shared the wall with... <laughs> what girls? I'm one of the oldest in age of our nursing crew, which made me the solver of problems, but I was most junior in rank, which made me a greenhorn. What's wrong now? I say in yawn, speak... Tina and Bo look serious. They're distraught. They say nearly simultaneously, Lieutenant Whitesides is missing. They insert this sense of urgency and mild confusion just in their body language. She's gone and we can't find her. They spew something about Whitesides wanting help, mental health help, like she's fucking losing it, mental health help. Tina then explains that they left the LT in her hooch. to go find the behavioral health major. Tina had hooked the two of them up together, but now they couldn't find them in any room on our floor at all. The rest of the portion of this conversation is a blur 
until we heard the first shotgun shot. As everyone has their own truth in the memory of war, what I remember is my truth and what somebody else remembers is theirs. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. I want to keep reading. Um, up next, um, oh, here we go. <laughs> up next we have uh, Deanne Gertner. Where's Deanne? Right there. Hi. Deanne has um, made her living mostly in the arts uh, for the past six years and currently works at Nine Dot Arts, where she helps companies tell their stories through original art. Um, and she is a short story writer. I'm just learning too. Um, and uh, please give a warm welcome to Deanne Gurney. Hello, um, this is a short, short story called Note to Self. When your 19-year-old son Henry sits you down at the kitchen table over pecan pancakes he made for your breakfast, a week after he's gotten back from Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD as he's come to call it, and tells you, we need to talk. Don't jump to conclusions. He has not knocked up some East Coast trust fund artsy girl. He hasn't contracted meningitis, nor is he Republican. He does not want to join the seminary or the Peace Corps or a cult. What he has to tell you is worse, decidedly more cruel and heart-wrenching for the mother of an only child to hear. He wants to take his sophomore year off so he can walk, not drive or hitchhike or bike or canoe, but walk on his two size 10 feet, feet you spent hours kissing, socking, shooing, this little piggying, to Anchorage, Alaska, 3,198 miles, to work the fishing boats for a summer. He is not joking. The line above his nose is above his nose between his sleek black eyebrows is soldier straight. Interjection interjections about bears, snakes, poison ivy, his allergies, his lack of common sense, crazy eyed truckers hopped up on meth and porn will not deter him. Don't remind him of the time he came crying home from the Cub Scout retreat in Mr. Benson's backyard. He'll simply smile and say, Mom, this is going to happen, and place his warm, wide, callous sculptor's hand on your back as your pancakes get cold and sticky with syrup while you imagine all the ways he could die on this peyote-induced quest of his. Save your tears for nighttime. Opt for a sound machine set to Amazon. The bird calls sound more like your hiccuping sobs than ocean tides. Do not try to muffle your cries in your pillow. Waking up with dried snot in your bangs makes for a challenging hair day. <laughs> Keep an eye mask in the freezer. Your coworkers will not believe that poofy-eyed syndrome is a real medical condition. When you've finally accepted that nothing you say will change his godforsaken mind, go into list-making hyperdrive. Paper Henry's room with lists of phone numbers, second and third cousins you've never met, 
food banks, homeless shelters, churches, police stations, quiz him on the worst-case scenario survival guide, how to survive frostbite, how to treat a bullet wound, how to perform a tracheotomy. (laughs) Make him recite back the passages as if they were scripture. Buy him long johns, wool socks, a goose-down parka, water purifying kits, everything-proof matches, a hatchet. Load your REI cart with so many silver packets of dehydrated food that NASA will suffer a shortage. (laughs) When Henry refuses to take a cell phone, GPS, or credit card, plead your case to every biker, hiker, skier, rock climber, and camper in the place until a jaundiced-looking sales clerk suggests an emergency signal transmitter. Try to suppress the hatred you feel for this dreadlocked, hairy-armpitted, gluten-free vegan. <laughs> she is not the enemy, and as you all know, as you know all too well from Vegas, you lack a poker face. In the days leading up to his departure, take your lunch breaks on sun-dappled benches at the playground, so you can watch kids swing, slide, clean, climb, crawl, dig, and chase. Let their squeals and giggles and tantrums spark memories. The afternoons you took naps together on the weekends, his hot, sweaty infant's body curled between your breasts. The soft, sweet scent of him, of his little bald head proof that perfection existed. Um, The time he won the countywide art show in sixth grade for his milk jug assemblage portrait of you. On the first day of October, an Indian summer still lingering in the air when you watch his pack burden body shrink to a black dot at dawn, lament that you gave him this courage, this heart, that could walk away from you and your good intentions, so certain that it would remain unchanged, unhardened on his return. Thanks. Thank you, Dean. That not only deeply entertaining but also very useful <laughs> and our next reader um, is a book project participant um, a former teacher current teacher current teacher former clown um, earlier today she read a um, a very interesting YA fantasy excerpt, and I believe she's going to uh, favor us with an older YA um, unrelated piece right now. Please give a warm welcome to Katie Peterson. This is my experiment in shorter fiction inspired by one student who wanted to study vampires. I know they're a little passe, but... And another student who was studying the cycles of the sun. I wondered what would happen, really, if you had a vampire that really had to live forever. Glasses raised, we are silent. It's called Vampires on Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons. Glasses raised, we are silent. Together we drink and slowly savor the last taste we will ever have of human blood. They are gone now, all of them, gone with the planet that bore them, swallowed by the swollen rose-red sun. It is not fresh, of course, but was frozen eons ago. The earliest colonists brought it to Titan as part of the emergency stockpiles. 
They also brought rats and rabbits who had taken to Titan's warming lakes and seas and bred like, well, rats and rabbits. On these, we survived now. The taste of human blood is so far back in my memory, I don't expect any recollections to present themselves. Yet across the ocean of a thousand thousands of years, a dim moment calls. Out behind the gin joint, jazz in the air, his crisp white shirt suspenders, his tender neck soft as bread, the beads from my skirt slapping against the tops of my thighs. He was so eager rushing to his own demise, the warmth of fresh blood I had forgotten, like the warmth of a kiss. The signal rings out clear, clean as silver, and we set our glasses down. Saturn's rings arc through the haze above us in a cold embrace. All around our small moonish home, 150,000 more or less damned immortals sit in the orange twilight and remember the last time. All that is gone now. We have been able to keep none alive. Leaving. We are, by our estimates, within two millennia of the helium flash, the next of our star's death throes. We've identified a dozen good candidates for terraforming and built our silver ships. The shock wave from the flash will give us a long push in the right direction. I wish you'd come with us, my love, I say, extending my hand. Vlad is already on board, waiting. Nigel smiled, smiles and kisses my fingers. I have never seen him smile. It is beautiful and terrible. No, he holds my hand between his, so cold, so calm. I was born by this soul. It glinted off my bejeweled body when I was hailed the first sun king of Yorba. I will die in its death. Honestly, love, isn't six billion years enough? No, I draw away. No, it's never enough. This present moment is all that exists, all that matters. The past is gone. It took a lot of planning to build those ships. He nods his head up at the tethers. They spin out their long lengths into the sky. From where we stand, we can see half a dozen bead-like elevators moving up and down the silver strings, each ship shining like a star at the end. Stars on strings held by Titan as a child holds a handful of bright balloons. To plan forward requires a memory of the past. He is right, of course. I remembered a child holding balloons. There hasn't been a child holding a balloon for a billion years. When the sun dies, you'll be torn to pieces. He reaches one hand up and cups it around my cheek. I hope so, he says. The last part, Kepler 22b. Kepler 22b grows large in the window. Our seventh attempt, two dozen millennia, six unsuitable planets, the ship eased into orbit. Vladimir built the computer. I programmed it. Any error would be our fault. Well, mine at this point. We found ways to end ourselves when desolation and despair pressed in with the dark. Space offers innumerable opportunities for being rent asunder. The others had succumbed. It was just me and the rats now, and even they were becoming too despondent to breed. I stroke Vlad's skull for luck in the seat next to me. I do this so often that the zygomatic arch nearer my side of the pilot's seat is worn smooth and thin. I should turn him so he faces me and rub his forehead, but I like him looking out front. 
I find comfort in the curve of his cheekbone. I hook my little finger through, making a pinky promise. So funny that after numberless mega anims, the memory that remains from the time of my innocence is hooking fingers with another little girl and promising... Promising what? That I can't remember. It must have been important at the time. Kepler 22B turns below the window a pearl of translucent jade. The computer speaks its verdict in my own voice. Kepler 22B, unsuitable. Another disappointment. Another millennium wasted. I turn the nose of the ship and point once again into the void. Wow. That w- that was that was sensuous. <laughs> um Thank you Katie. That was great. That was really good. Um up next uh this is this is what happens when you send in a, a a goofy joke bio to uh, to the introducer. Um, I'll read it first. Um, up next, we have uh, Nana Mizu- Mizushima, um, and according to Google, Nana Mizushima appears in Japanese manga cartoons as a super schoolgirl fighting evil with English gibberish emanating from a typewriter strapped to her body. <laughs> Uh, the Nanami Mizushima will be reading tonight um, is working on a translation of a Japanese memoir from 1949 um, and dabbles more in nonfiction than in um, English gibberish emanating from typewriter strapped to her body. Please welcome Nanami Mizushima. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, I really admire um, people who are good at uh, jokes and comedy, because I'm not, so that was my feeble attempt. But um, uh, I'm going to be reading tonight from something, actually, I just finished. Uh, so this is a uh, translation of a Japanese memoir that I just finished, and it, it uh, just came out on Amazon uh, this month. And um, thank you. <laughs> and uh, But I'm here at Litfest to learn more about creative writing because I'm working on a collection of short stories. But um, the first thing to tell you is that uh, my parents uh, immigrated from Japan. Uh, my dad was 22 when World War II ended, and uh, and then he came to the United States in 1955. And my mother was 13 when World War II ended. And I was very fortunate to meet a friend of uh, the family whose um, mother wrote a memoir um, based on her experiences in 1945. So that's the year World War II ended. And let me just read you the the back cover of this book. Uh, More than 60 years ago, in a nation devastated by World War II, Tei Fujiwara wrote her memoir, Nagareru Hoshi wa Ikiteiru, about her harrowing journey home with her three young children. But the story of her story is what every reader needs to know. Tei's memoir begins in August 1945 in Manchuria. 
At that time, Tay and her family fled from the invading Soviets, who declared war on Japan a few days after the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. After reaching her home in Japan, Tay wrote what she thought would be a last testament to her young children who wouldn't remember their journey and who might be comforted by their mother's words as they faced an unknown future in post-war Japan. But several miracles took place after she wrote this memoir. Tay survived, and her memoir, originally published in 1949, became a bestseller in a country still in ruins. Over the following decades, millions of Japanese became familiar with her story through 46 print runs, the movie version, and a television drama. To understand the war experience, Empress Michiko, who is the current empress, urged young Japanese to read Tay's memoir. Now English readers will have the chance to read her amazing story of survival and hope and understand how she influenced an entire generation and a nation with this book. Um, so I'm going to read uh, part of um, the middle of the book, chapter 22. And at this time, so she's in uh, North Korea with her family. Um, they've spent the winter in a town in North Korea um, and Tay has three children, a nine-month-year-old baby girl, a two-year-old boy named Masahiko, and a five-year-old boy named Masahiro. So I'm just going to read this part. And this is my first reading. <laughs> so, um, As the rice rations got cut back, more and more children became sick. Their stomachs couldn't digest the rough mixture we fed them instead of rice. Mrs. Honda's little son, Kenchan, became very thin, weak, and caught pneumonia. In just a matter of minutes, his fever spiked and he stopped breathing. Why did death come so easily? It was terrible to see Mrs. Honda, usually so strong, huddled over Kenchan's corpse, while her husband, just released from the Soviet gulag, still lay sick. We didn't know if she would ever recover, but we prepared a small coffin to carry her son up to the Japanese cemetery another small grave to join the many already there. April arrived, but no sign of spring yet. Rumors of the evacuation home came and went, swirling like the wind. We all wondered, when will we begin the journey home? We went up into the mountains to buy cheap wood and bring it back. There was a small hamlet about two kilometers away, with the Ogawa River running through the middle. From there, we climbed the mountains to pick up wood scattered on the snowy ground and carry the pieces on our backs down the mountain. Around noon, the snow melted and our feet broke through the crunchy surface and sank into the spongy ground. Pieces of ice slipped into our shoes when we pulled our feet out from the mud. Then the ice melted in our shoes and the cold pierced the soles of our feet. The snow on the forest floor was thin where the sunlight had penetrated the trees. I smelled it. Spring was close. I stopped to rest a moment after I tied a bundle of the firewood and hoisted it onto my back before the climb back down. I glanced toward Sensen. It looked farther away than I expected. The town was hazy. The outlines of the buildings were unclear. The moisture in the air was a harbinger of spring in the valley. Only the church steeple stood out. If those church bells rang, this whole scene would glimmer, I thought, and ignored the branches poking into my back as I climbed back down the hill. When I got back home, I was relieved to find my three children safe and sound. Two-year-old Masahiko's pneumonia didn't seem to have slowed him down at all. He was as lively as ever after recovering, 
He was also as hungry as ever and was always pestering me for something to eat. Today, after the wood gathering was finished, our group decided to boil potatoes as an afternoon treat. After the group bought and cooked the potatoes, we made a small mountain of the tubers. But instead of trying to divide the motley roots into equal portions, we let 30 people draw for chances to choose their own potatoes. I paid for four potato servings, so I received four chances. Once I got our potatoes, I divided them up into three small equal portions for me and my two boys. Five-year-old Masahiro ate his potatoes slowly and with care. But two-year-old Masahiko gobbled his up quickly and with gusto. As always, he then wanted some of mine. I scolded him to behave, but he didn't listen. He kept tormenting me, and finally I gave up and let Masahiko have the rest of my potatoes. Exasperated, I said, Masahiko-chan, this is all there is. Don't give mommy such a hard time. Masahiko finally settled down after he had my potatoes in his hands. I almost started to cry as I watched my two-year-old eat so voraciously. Suddenly, five-year-old Masahiro, who had been quietly watching me and his little brother, said, Mommy, I'll give you my potato. You can't nurse the baby if you're hungry. He handed me his half-eaten potato, one with his teeth marks still in it. My five-year-old son's face was so earnest, my sad heart ached. I couldn't help but cry out. My five-year-old, who was starving himself, understood my predicament and tried to help me. I was so happy to witness this child's goodness, I started crying. Mrs. Daichi and Mrs. Kurashiga turned to see why I was sobbing. Worried, they came over to me. What's wrong, Oksan? they asked. It's nothing, I said, and wiped my tears. I carefully tucked away that beautiful memory of Masahiro's kindness deep into my heart. Meanwhile, his little brother, Masahiko, who had finished his potato, laughed innocently and crowed, Mommy's crying! Mommy's crying! <laughs> so, and I just wanted to add that on Friday, I'm going to bring um, more copies of my book, and if anyone is willing to write a review of it and post it onto Amazon, I'd be happy to give you a copy. So let me know. I'm probably Friday afternoon after my class is done on Friday. I'll bring them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, sometimes you have a reader who... Um, you can't classify because she writes everything. Uh, this is a case for our, our next reader, Trish Kinkle. Um, so um, all we have to say about Trish Kinkle is that she's a juried LitFest part, uh, workshop participant, and I'm not sure what she's going to read. I'll let her surprise us. Please welcome Trish Kinkle. Hi. Okay, um, what I'm going to read tonight is a short piece. It's an essay, and it's called Ivory. I picture my brain as ivory, with memories etched into its surface like scrimshaw. Memories I can rewind and play like an old movie inside my head. The detail, color, and vivid conversation amaze me. I'm even more amazed that memory holds more meaning than present events, Perhaps anything of significance, anything with a little time or distance on it, gets etched more deeply, more completely, 
until it forms a sharper, clearer image. Maybe with age, the ivory's worn smooth and slick, so the recent happenings only perch on the surface momentarily, and then slide down to some refuse bin at the base of the brain where trivia comes to rest. I'm made up of these deep etchings, these scrimshaw memories. Long, long ago, I was a much younger woman. Still longer ago, I was a small child. It is the film of that little girl that plays across my mind. And like any movie I have seen more than once, I've become aware of the flaws and the fantasy, the moments of supreme perfection and beauty. I know now that we were poor, but back then my eyes were unaware of the shabby two-bedroom shingled house, the sagging porch with the steps worn smooth in the center by repeated footfall. The tiny yard seemed spacious to my spindly legs. My father's garden grew in a small plot near the garage. He hoed bare-chested. Daddy, I asked, do you really think the fairy godmother can turn a pumpkin into a coach? Hmm, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I said, bending down to smooth the skin of a new green pumpkin, I think so. I mean, I hope so. Otherwise, Cinderella wouldn't get to go to the ball, and then she wouldn't meet the prince and become a princess. I spiraled the reaching vine around my finger. I guess it doesn't really matter, though. Oh, why's that? Because my teachers said we live in America, the land of opportunity. Everybody's equal. And everybody can be whatever they want to be. So as long as Cinderella lived in America, she wouldn't need to go to the ball. She could be a princess all by herself. (laughs) He seemed startled. He slowly shook his head. The smile he returned was without mirth. Is that right, he asked dancing the hoe back and forth between his hands. Is that right? I felt shy and embarrassed. I knew by looking at my father that I had said something to make him sad. Hey, he whispered, what's this? He wiped a tear trickling down my cheek. Now he said, just remember, if you happen to need a prince, you always have daddy, okay? Those few shared moments were precious. I saw so little of him. He went to work before I awakened and came home long after I was in bed. One evening, long after the house was lost to silence and my sister's soft breathing, I waited. I listened for the sound of the gate, my father's step, the key in the lock, and then, as if I dreamed him up, there he stood. I scrambled to the end of the bed, stretched out my arms, and called to him, Daddy, come kiss me goodnight. He stood gently swaying, hands clasped together, eyes blinking. In a strange rocking motion, he worked his way across the room. Then, as if in slow motion, he fell in a perfect arc, brushing past my arms and landing sprawled on the floor below me. I did not move or cry out. My sisters slept on. I stood alone in silence. Suddenly, my mother appeared. She tried to pull him to his feet. Sinking to the floor, she began to rock him in her arms, crying his name again and again. I stood transfixed, watching, waiting. Would I ever get my kiss? Suddenly, now with time and distance, I know things. I know my father was drunk that night, that he drank often. I know in the moment my father fell, a seven-year-old girl's childhood dropped away from her like a set of outgrown clothes. In an instant, everything changed. The world, with all its shine and polish, became a tarnished thing. A teacher's words became a lie. People cannot always be what they want to be. Some of it comes from birth some from opportunity, 
and plenty from just plain luck. Unfortunately, my father had none of these. And what of my kiss? I think of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, princesses whose very lives depended on a kiss. If the prince had not arrived to awaken Sleeping Beauty, would she have slept forever? Would the poison apple still be lodged in Snow White's throat if the prince had not lifted her for a kiss? Fairy tales. The absence of a kiss changed my life. I myself have learned not to wait. I know things. I know it takes years to forgive a father for being less than imagined, for his humanness. Inside my head, I see my father's life unfold. I watch as he rises from that bedroom floor and becomes not a prince, but simply a man, a man who is both fragile and strong. I watch, and I know the movie ends. I see him age and die much too young. I see him lying tiny and twisted in a hospital bed, his fingers plucking the covers like violin strings. Leaning to kiss his brow, I feel the final fever of a life going out. My lips burn from the heat, and I know beneath the brow is ivory, and within the ivory is a flame, and the last flicker is memory. Thank you, Trish. That was moving. Um, and thanks for reading about your father, too. It's appropriate. I mean, it, I've been thinking about my father for the past um, several days, too. Um, our last reader tonight, um, we, we started this this second half of the reading in Abu Ghraib and we're going to finish it in the Pentagon um, with Carolyn Daughters. Carolyn Daughters is a fine fiction writer. Um, she worked for three years as a contractor uh, at the Pentagon where she spent her days perpetually perpetually lost in the building's 17.5 uh, miles of corridors. <laughs> and it's, uh, she says it's a miracle that she ever found her way out. Part of her novel, tentatively, tentatively titled Cat Fletcher, is loosely based on her experiences at that behemoth structure, affectionately known by the insiders as Fort Fumble. Please welcome Carolyn Daughters. Thanks, everybody, for being here. We're running a little bit long, and so I just wanted to say thank you for everyone sticking around, but even more importantly, for everybody just coming out, because as you know, we writers are not attention seekers. We like to share all of the hard work that we put into our writing. It's our heart. It's our soul. It's, it's something we love, and so thank you very much for being here. And one other thing, thank you very much to the amazing, very talented J.D. Fry. An event like this can't happen unless we have someone to help emcee it, and he graciously volunteered for several of these, I think, to show up and, and help kind of commandeer things. So, so thank you. I need help with this. <laughs> it's falling apart. It's uphill.
<laughs> okay. That's good. I'm not, I'm not gonna. <laughs> okay, so this is about a third of the way through my novel, Cat Fletcher. I joined a dozen military and civilian personnel for a meeting in the Pentagon stockpile, a windowless room with chalky white walls and a water-stained ceiling. Across from me, I saw a young woman who looked like hell. Ratty hair, puffy eyes, a wrinkled dress that reminded me of the one I wore, a wrinkled dress exactly like the one I wore. Crap, I was looking at my own reflection in a wall mirror. <laughs> from what I can tell, I had applied blush to only one cheek. A co-worker flipped through the early bird, a compilation of military-related news stories put out by the Defense Department. He pointed to a story about plans by the new Secretary of Defense to slice the Pentagon bureaucracy by 15%. I have no desire to attack the Pentagon, Donald Rumsfeld was quoted as saying. I want to liberate it. We need to save it from itself. Free the Pentagon, my co-worker said with a fist pump. Is that anything like free Tibet, I asked? <laughs> It's practically the same thing. <laughs> the briefing was in full swing when an Air Force colonel wheeled in a TV. What is it, we asked. What's going on? The colonel tuned to CNN. Minutes earlier, a plane had accidentally crashed into the World Trade Center. That's what the reporter said. On the screen, blackness slinked skyward from the center's north tower. Oh's, oh no's, cracks in the reporter's voice, sparks from the TV, ponderous breathing breathing that left little air. At 9.03 a.m., a bedlam of utterance, the volume rising. A second plane had flown into the South Tower. It happened on our watch. We saw it live. We recoiled, moved further away, distanced ourselves from the TV as if hell itself were sourced from that box. We huddled within, arms tight about ourselves, each isolated in a carapace of fear, fear that we couldn't bear what might well need to be born. Oh my God, we said we cried it over and over, believers, agnostics, and atheists alike. A woman started to cry. She was from the Netherlands or Holland or whatever that country is called. I cannot breathe, she said. Her English was near perfect. A slight accent, the accent charming. Nothing bad can happen in a world with such diction and articulation. I hoped it was true. You'll get through this, I told her. I unwrapped myself, put my hand on her arm. The colonel pounded the screen and everyone quieted. We amassed all our hope in the wide-eyed reporter's ability to make sense of what was happening. The Dutch woman rose, clutched her chest, and a guy behind us swooped in, snagged her chair all smug like he had scored a happy hour seat at his favorite bar. That's when I noticed what I hadn't noticed before, her untucked blouse, the swell of her stomach. She was six months, maybe seven. Get up, I yelled at the guy. He did a bang-up job of ignoring me. I sat the woman in my chair, stared the guy down. I was seconds away from playing bouncer. From that point, nothing was the same. With my outburst, I had lit a spark. The stillness in the room upended. Language turned to squall, shards and fragments. Two planes, the reporter said. Two towers. Possible hijacking. Possible terrorism. This can't be happening, we said. In dazed, we scrambled in search of landlines and cell phones. This room is a fire hazard, I thought, as dozens poured out and dozens more rooted into a space the size of a prison cell. I ran out of the room, left to find my husband. I carved through the body-to-body -body surge, to the corridor, to the stairs, to the ramp, to the central courtyard past ground zero, our name for the hot dog stand at the Pentagon's dead center. 
When I made it to the E-ring on the building's west side, I entered the office where he worked. Three guys looked up from their desks. They knew nothing. No surprise there, what with the building's infrastructure being a series of networks installed piecemeal since 1943. Their warm smiles settled me. Have you seen my husband, I asked, my voice calm, the fight in me all but expended. Before they could answer, the wall burst behind me, the force propelling me over all three desks. I fell into a fetal position on tremoring ground, and every which way downpour of building rubble and men's screams. I strummed sandy carpet amid the ruin, not a sound, the air so thick I couldn't see myself. I spread my hands under my shoulders, straightened my arms, lifted my chest off the floor. What is this yoga pose called, I wondered, before I dropped back to the ground. Bright light, bright light shrunk to flickering gray as sprinklers shushed a burning building. Get up, I yelled. I did as I was told. Blood trail behind me, I crawled until carpet turned to wet tile. A burnt orange shooting star sailed high, exploded outward. Make a wish, I thought. Then I remembered that in yoga, it's called a cobra pose, and I raised myself up as flames came at me like surf on a beach. Thank you, Carolyn. That was great. Thank you. Um, that's that's our whole reading for tonight. Let's uh, can we have a round for everybody who got up and read tonight? Thank you so much. You guys are great. That was the best one. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible: the Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries. Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.